This sermon was recorded at Highway Mountain View in Mountain View, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. The rest of you, good morning. Thank you. My name is Greg, and uh, it's always a privilege when I have a chance to be here this morning. And this morning, we're concluding our teaching series through Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And what I'd like to do is to consider Paul's central message in this letter and ask, what story of hope does the gospel have to say to us here and now at such a time as this? Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like the news headlines have been dominated by tragedy after tragedy, both here and abroad this month. You know, just over a month ago, Omar Mateen walked into a gay nightclub in Orlando and opened fire, killing 50 people and wounding 50 more in what is considered the worst mass shooting in recent American history, an act of terrorism, but also a hate crime. And this horrific tragedy sent so many into shock and mourning, especially the LGBT community. And then, just over a week and a half ago, video surfaced of Alton Serling and then Philando Castile being shot and killed by white police officers, reopening this deep wound for the African-American community and sparking a slew of protests over police conduct and gun legislation. And then, during a peaceful protest in Dallas, Micah Johnson ambushed white police officers in a heinous act of retaliation. And this sent the nation into further grieving, but also into this weird battle between Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter. And just this past week, a man drove a truck through a crowd gathered in celebration in Nice, France, in what is being called a blatant act of terrorism, killing 80 and wounding dozens more. And then just this morning, and I checked my news feed, there's another shooting in Baton Rouge. And I don't know about you, but I've found myself this month oscillating between anxiety and fear and despair and reaching for my phone for a distraction. Because my heart cannot just seem to take in all the senseless violence, the deep-seated racism, the bigotry, the fear-mongering, the thought of kids growing up without their parents, the thought of parents burying their kids. And there's something within me that just wants to cry out in pain, in anguish. This isn't how it's supposed to be. There's something within us that should protest whenever innocent lives of people who bear the image of God wherever they are and whoever they are are tragically and violently snuffed out. I also think there's a very real threat in moments like this to let despair overtake us, or to just get caught up in finding someone to blame, or to disengage and tune out entirely because we just don't know what to do. And the one thing I want to say this morning, as clearly as I can, is that none of those options, despair, blame, apathy, none of those are congruent with the call that we've been given to embody Jesus to a hurting and divided world. So this morning, I want to open up Paul's letter to the Galatians one more time to search for the hope that our story has to bear and what claim our story makes on us. 
At the heart of Paul's letter to the Galatian church is a conflict over how are we to understand what it means to be the people of God. Let's remember the context. After Paul had preached his gospel to the Galatians, a party of Jewish Christians had shown up telling these Gentile Christians that, yes, they need to trust that Christ's faithfulness on the cross had allowed them to be in right standing before God, but to receive the full blessing from God promised to the heirs of Abraham, they also needed to follow the law. It was a gospel, as Lisa put it some weeks back, of Jesus plus. And now we have to remember that how strongly the ethnic lines were drawn between Jews and Gentiles at this time. If you were a Jew in Paul's day, your entire reality was structured around maintaining clear identity markers of who we were and who they were. And we could know who we were by keeping to the law handed down by Moses. And this law included important cultural rituals, such as keeping the Sabbath, what kinds of foods you could eat, and who you could eat them with, and the quintessential symbol for males, that you were one of us, was by marking your flesh through circumcision. And that's the issue at the heart of the conflict of this letter. It's a battle over how are we going to be marked out as God's people. And Paul's agenda throughout the whole letter is to persuade the Galatian Christians that something incredible has happened. God is changing the way that his people will be marked out in the world. No longer will they be marked out by keeping the law and the rituals of the flesh like circumcision. No, instead, God's people will be marked out in an entirely new way. They will be marked out by how they love each other embodying the fruit of the Spirit, bearing one another's burdens. And this morning, I want to read Paul's conclusion, and then I want to zoom out and consider the implications this has for us. So would you read with me Galatians 6, starting in verse 11. It'll be up on the screen. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. That's how Paul concludes the letter to the Galatians. He starts out taking one last shot at his opposition, and he reiterates the point he's made over and over again for the last five and a half chapters. Don't get circumcised. Why? Because to take on this one mark was a symbolic act of submission to the entire law. And Paul will call that earlier in this letter slavery, not because it's inherently evil, but because it's been rendered obsolete. It's been transcended by the new thing that God did in Christ. And that's why Paul will say this in verse 14. Look with me. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me 
and I to the world. Paul urges the Galatian church, do as I do and stay focused on the cross of Jesus. Now, for Paul, the cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't something just for one person or even just one tribe. For Paul, the cross was the turning point in all of history. It was the turning point between two ages, the old age and the new age, or the age of the spirit, as John introduced it some weeks back. So when Paul says in verse 14, I will boast in, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The phrase, the world there, he's not talking about dirt and trees and things. The world there means an entire system of values. Envying, boasting, striving, competing, performing to justify yourself at the expense of others. He says, that's no more. And for Paul to say, I have been crucified to the world, means that he has, in a sense, died to the old age with its old systems and old set of values. He has severed ties to this way of being in the world, which is why he can say in verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Paul changes the way the Galatians were supposed to understand themselves. Paul didn't say, well, circumcision mattered before, but now uncircumcision matters more. No, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. Why? Because they are symbols that belong to the thing of the old age. But the old age was put to death with Jesus on the cross. And when God raised Christ from the dead and unleashed the spirit of Christ into the world, now, new creation. New creation has arrived. And I think when Paul uses this phrase, new creation, he's got the prophet Isaiah in mind. See, hundreds of years prior to when Paul is writing, Israel was in exile. And they wondered, when is God going to intervene and rescue us? And what will it be like when he does? And during their exile, God would speak through prophets. And when God spoke to the prophet Isaiah, he said this. He said, when I act to rescue, this is what it's going to be like Isaiah chapter 65 says this, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. And the passage goes on to cast this amazing vision that when God makes his definitive move to deliver, it will include the people of Israel, but it will also extend beyond the boundaries of this one ethnic group, and even beyond humanity to include animals in the ground itself. Isaiah gives us this cosmic vision, a new heavens and a new earth in which weeping and crying will be heard no more. Because the old age of sin and death will not have the last word, because God is opening up a new age, new creation that makes possible an entirely new way of living in the world. As Paul, and Paul will say, as ones who trust in Christ, you have been set free from the old age. You have been transferred from the old age into the new already. 
You are part of this new creation that has erupted in our midst. And that means you are in the process of being renewed inwardly by the Spirit of Christ. But Paul also wants us to understand how we are supposed to relate to each other and to the world around us. Which is why Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3, You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the turning point. It introduces a whole new way of being and living in the world. No longer do the distinctions of ethnicity or social class or gender that are determinative in the old age matter. The old ways of organizing, who's in and who's out, who's blessed, who's not, who has power, who doesn't power, those don't matter in the new creation. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what does count then in the new creation? Listen again to what Paul urges in Galatians chapter 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's Paul's message to the Galatians. What matters in the new creation is that we take hold of our role as agents of the new creation, living lives of faith, expressing itself through love. And it's precisely because we are agents of the new creation that we are right to oppose whatever actions or systems that would seek to build back up the walls between genders or ethnicities or social classes or any other kind of boundary you might draw. That kind of division has no place being here, not inside the walls of the church or out in the world. And we are right to say unequivocally that violence of any kind has no place in the new creation. Terrorism, bigotry, racism have no place in the new creation. That's the good news the Christian story has to offer at a time like this. But this story also makes a claim on us. Paul is saying, what matters in the new creation is faith expressing itself through love. So, choose love. Choose love. What does choosing love look like, especially in a moment like this when so much of the old age seems to hold us captive? Well, First, let me humbly submit two thoughts on what choosing love doesn't look like. And I want to focus in for a moment on the racial tension in our country. You know, too often we can deal with fear and pain and grief by splitting the world up into two groups. There is right and wrong, heroes and villains, us and them. And this is what I've seen happen in the wake of the shootings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and the five Dallas police officers. 
These killings reopened deep wounds for the African-American community, and yet a battle erupted in the news and on social media, and it was Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, and you had to pick a side. This is so often what we do, isn't it? We get caught up in this binary thinking. And when we can find someone to blame, someone on whom we can heap our anger and our pain, then we can feel a release, confident that we're one of the good guys. But that's not love. Or this, maybe you've watched this play out, this black versus blue, and just wanted to stay on the sidelines or tune it out entirely because maybe it takes too much energy to care or you don't know what to think, or because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing and you don't want to get labeled and ostracized as one of the bad guys. That was my initial reaction. I didn't want to say the wrong thing, so I just chose to be silent and stay out of the fight altogether. But this week I've been thinking really hard about what affords me the luxury of staying out of a tense conversation about race and justice just because I want to. And this was really uncomfortable. And I realized this week that I've just barely begun to unpack all of that. But here's what I do know. Choosing love doesn't look like disengaging or being indifferent. If the call is to be a community of people who live expressing their faith through love, then what does choosing love look like? Let me offer one story that could point us forward, individually and as a church. I want to tell you a story about a woman named Sister Simone Campbell. She started a thing called Nuns on the Bus. And what they do is they travel around the country on a bus promoting justice and dignity and equality for all people in this country. And Sister Simone plans to take their bus to both the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention, which is in just a few days. And she knows that when she goes to the Republican National Convention, she is going to encounter a lot of people who oppose her platform. A few months ago when she was talking about her plans to set up right at the entrance of the arena, the Republican National Convention, someone said, are you sure that's a good idea? Don't you think that's kind of dangerous? And this is what she said. She said, what I intend to do is not go there to convince people of my points of view, but instead to hear from them. She said, when I go out on my bus, I'm not trying to persuade people. I'm trying to hear their stories. I go in order to ask them about their pain. Because my theory is that most people have never had someone take the time to actually hear them. That, to me, is a picture of love listening to people who you don't necessarily agree with, listening to their pain and hearing through the noise one another's 
humanity. That's what it could look like to choose love. Listen to another person's pain. Listen to another person's pain and listen long enough to recognize the humanity of another. That's what I think repentance could look like for this community. I can't stand here and pretend that I have all the answers, because I don't. I'm just giving you the best I've got right now. And the best that I can figure at the moment is this. The call to live into God's vision for new creation will demand that we oppose violence in every form, but also apathy. And if you don't know where to start with that, here's my challenge to you. Refuse every effort and temptation to slip into dualistic us versus them, right versus wrong, black versus blue kind of thinking. Refuse every attempt to slip into dualistic thinking and choose instead to be willing to listen, especially to the voices in communities who are feeling pain and grief, especially to the voices in the African-American community who have typically gone unheard, especially to the voices we don't agree with, and listen long enough to acknowledge that pain, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable. And maybe when we do that, will realize there can be no us versus them. It's just us. Nick and the band are going to come back up and lead us through a few songs that I hope will give us words that may be hard to find. The first song we'll sing is a new one. And I want you to pay attention to how the song begins. The first line says, we've seen mothers bury sons and we're begging you to come. This is a song of lament. It's a song of crying out over the pain that we see and feel and a song of yearning for God's grace to save us from ourselves. And we need songs that can give language to express our pain and sadness. But we also need to practice lamenting on behalf of others. So here's my invitation to you this morning. Can we, as a church community gathering in Mountain View, California, be this morning one strong voice of lament for all who have suffered in Orlando, in St. Paul, in Baton Rouge, in Dallas, in all the places where the sin and categories and barriers of the old age still resist God's project of liberation and healing in the world. Can we do that? 
if you don't know this song and you don't want to sing, that's fine. But take these words and turn them into your prayer for yourself, for this community, for our world. Can I pray for you? Spirit come. Make us aware of your presence here. We ask for eyes to see clearly the pain person's behalf. We ask for the courage to listen long enough to actually feel. We ask that your spirit, God, would show us where we need to repent call to mind in this moment the ways that we've participated unknowingly and knowingly in building back up the barriers and walls and categories that you have already rendered obsolete and broken down. Guide us gently to a place of confession, Lord, trusting that you are good and gracious and merciful. Better way of living.